So I was going to start off just by kind of reading the section that we're looking at. We got quite a ways into the account of the Samaritan woman at the well last time, uh, but, but I'd like to kind of read the whole thing, at least uh, once Jesus actually gets to uh, the, the, the city where this takes place, just to kind of refresh your minds. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had got away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who, that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. How do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship, worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who, <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I who speak to you am he. So, we looked at a few things last time. One of the, the things that I, I think is kind of worth uh, just reminding our, ourselves of is that, um, <clears throat> let's see, let me go, go back one. When, when Jesus uh, reveals this woman's sin, he asks you, um, bring your husband, and, and she says, I have no husband. It, now, that kind of looks like a dodge to me, and I ho hopefully to you as well. She's answering in a way that's technically correct, but it's kind of seeking to conceal you know, the, a, a more thorough answer. And it's odd that Jesus commends her twice. Um, you're right in saying, I have no husband. What you have said is true. So there, there's a real emphasis um, on Jesus apparently commending an answer that I can't find anything commendable about, at least on the surface. And I think what is going on is that she has answered more truthfully than she realizes. You know, in, in trying to evade the truth, she's actually hit a deeper truth. 
um, she doesn't have a husband, and she needs one. Uh, Jesus, uh, as, as the bridegroom, which was just discussed in the previous section with, with John the Baptist, you know, is the husband that she actually needs. Thank you. <clears throat> um, and so I think kind of keeping that in mind is helpful. One of the things that we looked at briefly last time is that there's a, a remarkable number of parallels between this and you know, three different uh, betrothal accounts in Genesis and early Exodus, uh, where a betrothal t takes place at a well. Um, and there's you know, a remarkable number of, of parallels. We looked at that um, more closely. <clears throat> and you know, this isn't a literal betrothal, of course, but I think John is, is kind of uh, symbolically showing us that you know, coming to Christ is like being uh, betrothed to him. And I think that's, that's the reason that John points out these parallels. Uh, the, another thing that we looked at, what's the connection between God being uh, spirit and being worshipped in spirit and truth? And I think that what Jesus is saying is that you know, externals, you know, physical location or descent. He's, talk, he's talking to a Samaritan woman who you know, externally would, would not be a good candidate uh, for the people of God, but Jesus goes right to her in, in this city no longer matter. It's the condition of a worshiper's heart that God's concerned with. God is spirit. He's not confined to a particular place, and so there's no reason to worship. Uh, there's no reason that worship at one place would be preferable to another, and so that's part of what uh, Jesus is getting at. <clears throat> Jesus uses the phrase spirit and truth. So let me uh, advance just a little bit. Um, Spirit has a wide range of, of meaning, so it could mean a lot of things. Of course, it could mean the Holy Spirit. Um, but I, I don't think it means that here because there's no article in front of it. It doesn't say the Spirit. It just says Spirit. And so without the article, I think it, it's probably um, worshiping from one's heart might be a, a better translation, authentic worship from the heart. It's certainly biblically correct to acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is involved in our worship. And so it isn't necessarily a problem if you go the other way on interpreting this. I just don't think that's what is meant here. <clears throat> um, there was a, a sermon that I read in preparing for this by James Boyce that uh, kind of divided worship in spirit and uh, what it means to worship in truth into three categories that I thought were very useful. And so I'm going to kind of follow Boyce's outline. In um, one of the ways that you, you would worship in, in truth would be honestly and wholeheartedly. It would be possible to follow prescribed rituals at, at the temple with no inner thoughts directed to God. You could have a really good knowledge of the Pentateuch and you could kind of do the right things in the temple but not have a heart that's in the right place. Um, the externals could be flawless. They could completely conform to the requirements for worship but they would lack anything meaningful from the heart. I think true worship needs to be concerned not with the exterior so much as directing one's heart towards God. <clears throat> worship also needs to be on the basis, or true worship also needs to be on the basis of biblical revelation. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to quote Boyce here. When the Protestant Reformation first took place under Mar Martin Luther in the early 16th century, and the doctrines and principles of the Word of God long covered over by traditions and encrustations of ceremony of the medieval church again came forth into prominence, there was immediate elevation of the Word of God in Protestant services. Calvin particularly carried this out with thoroughness, ordering that the altars, long the center of the Latin Mass, 
be removed from churches and that the pulpit upon and that a pulpit upon which a Bible is placed be at the center of the building. This was not on one side of the room. It was in the very center where every line of architecture would carry the gaze of the worshiper to the book that alone contains the way of salvation and, the outline, and outlines the principles upon which the church of the living God is to be governed. And so I think God's revelation is really kind of the, the way that we worship in truth. And finally, worship needs to be through Christ. Um, Jesus is the only way to God. If we kind of think back to the temple and the tabernacle, there was an altar between the priest and the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies would be God's presence. And uh, to get to the Holy of Holies, you needed to atone for sin. And, and that altar is there. And I think it, it's reasonable to see that altar as a picture of what Christ provides in bridging the way between us and the presence of God. I'd like to um, step outside of John a little bit here. This is going to be a, a kind of a, a, a long divergence, but it was so good I just couldn't resist doing it. Um, let's see. The particular verse uh, that, that I, I want to kind of focus in on, uh, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship in the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. This really bothered C.S. Lewis, and uh, C.S. Lewis's reflections on, the, on this, I think, give us a lot uh, of, of very valuable insights into worship, and so I'd like to uh, take you through this. There, there was a very good summary uh, that Sam Storms put up uh, on this, and so this is very lightly adapted from what Sam Storms wrote. I'm going to be quoting Sam Storms quite a bit as well as uh, C.S. Lewis in here. <clears throat> What kind of God is it, Lewis asked himself, who would go about trying to find people to worship him? What are you doing, God, we might ask him. Well, I'm on the hunt. I'm on the lookout for people who will tell me how great I am. And I especially want them to tell everyone else how great I, great I am. Lewis was more than puzzled by this. He was agitated and deeply offended. It is one thing, said Lewis, to tell Christ, um, that Christians tell other people to worship God. What made it even worse is that God himself called for his own praise. This was almost more than Lewis could stomach. What kind of God is it who incessantly demands his people tell him how wonderful he is? Lewis describes his struggle and how he worked through it in an extraordinary passage from the essay, The Problem of Praise in the Psalms. And so I'm going to quote Lewis here. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, delightfulness, we despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. Thus a picture, at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and his worshiper th worshipers threatened to appear in my mind. The Psalms were especially troublesome in this way. Praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord with me. Praise him. Worse still was the statement put into God's own mouth. Whoever offereth me thanks and praise, he honoreth me. It was hideously like saying, what I most want to be told is that I am good and great. It was extremely distressing. It made one think that, um, think that which one least wanted to think. Gratitude to God, reverence to him, obedience to him. I thought I could understand those, but not this perpetual eulogy. Yes. Yeah, he. <clears throat> you know, we, we, we 
Yeah, so Lewis has a number of positions that we would consider you know, problematic. Um, he, he wouldn't quite fall in the Arminian category. He, he had some leanings, but he certainly would not be Calvinistic either. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I think, he was, I think he's not a good theologian and he's a little confused on the issue. But he's got other problematic things as well. No, no question on that. Um, the, yeah, when Lewis is good, he's extremely good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think Lewis does need to be read with discernment. I do not agree with Lewis on, on a number of things, and yet I, I really enjoy reading him. And I've, I've learned a lot from Lewis. And I think here Lewis is, is correct, at least mostly correct. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I I do agree with you that you know you you, you do need to read Lewis with uh, some discernment, but um, I I I I think that you'll you'll see that Lewis has some really good insights here, and I I I think that he's he's on the right track in, in this particular line of thinking. Um, and by by the way the the way that this problem has been set up so far, yeah, um, I I was taught growing up not to really question things like that. And I, I'm glad Lewis questioned this. It, it's good uh, to, to think, wait a minute, why, why is this the way that it is? Because we do worship a God who's infinitely glorious and who is real. And as a result, you know, if something kind of like what Lewis observed comes up, we should be able to look at it and we should be able to see God in a greater glory by kind of honestly going to this issue and investigating it the way that Lewis does. And you'll see that Lewis has a, a really beautiful solution to this. Storms um, suspects the, re the reason that we find this problematic, like Lewis did, is because we tend to think of God as preeminently concerned with us, not with himself. We want a God that's man-centered, not God-centered. We're still, we can't fathom how God could possibly love us in a, um, the way that we think that he should if he's so unapologetic, uh, apologetically obsessed with praise of his own glory and name. How can God uh, love me if all of his infinite energy and love is ex expended in the love of himself? And quoting Lewis, the miserable idea that God should in any sense need or crave our worship like a vain woman wanting compliments or a vain author presenting his new books for people that he's never uh, met or even heard of him is implicitly answered by these words, uh, quoting the, the Psalms, if I be hungry, I will not tell thee. Even if such an absurd deity could be conceived, he would hardly come to us, the lowest of rational creatures, to gratify his appetites. I don't want my dog to bark the approval of my books. Lewis is addressing somewhat indirectly the question, um, how, or better yet, why do you worship a God who needs nothing? 
if God is altogether self-sufficient and cannot be served by human hands as if he needed anything, least of all glory, why does he command our worship and praise of him? Lewis continues, But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or giving honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising, the, praising their mistresses. Uh, readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join in praising that. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The Psalms, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of that which they care about. My whole, more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly de uh, denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable, what we naturally delight to do, what indeed we can't help but doing uh, about everything else we value. What Lewis is touching on here is that the love of God for sinners like you and me is ultimately made manifest, uh, is that love, uh, this is how lo the love of God is, uh, to sinners like you and me is ultimately made manifest. God desires our greatest good, but what greater good is there in the universe than God himself? So, if God is truly to love us, he must give us of himself. But merely giving us of himself is only the first step in the expression of his affection to sinners. He must work to elicit from our hearts rapturous praise and superlative delight, because, as Lewis said, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. That's the way God made us. We can't help but praise and rejoice in what we uh, most enjoy. The enjoyment itself is stunted and hindered if it is never expressed in joyful celebration. This is how Lewis explains it. I think we delight uh, to praise what we enjoy because the praise is not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is, to suddenly come to a turn of the road under some, uh, upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and to have to keep silent because the people who, that you're with care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch, or to hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with. <clears throat> um, so to kind of put the, this, summarize this in Storm's words, God's pursuit of your praise of him is not some weak self-seeking, but it's the epitome of self-giving love. If your satisfaction in, in God is incomplete until expressed in praise of him for satisfying you with himself, um, note well, himself, not gifts, not blessings, but the intrinsic beauty and splendor of God as God, then God's efforts to elicit your worship, uh, what Lewis thought, thought before was inexcusable and selfish, is both the most uh, loving thing that he could possibly do for you, and it's the most glorifying thing that he could possibly do for himself. For in our gladness in him, not as gifts, um, that, is our, uh, that is his glory in us. Or as John Piper has famously, famously said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Um, 
when we get to the next section, we're going to see the woman do exactly this. She meets Jesus, she is excited about him, and she's going to go into the city to tell people about him. And so uh, that's uh, the connection. We've got just a couple things to cover in these verses before we can get back to that, though. Um, so in, in verse uh, 26, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. So uh, this appears to be a, a claim of Jesus to the, be the Messiah. A liberal will try to dodge that and say that he's only kind of claiming to be someone that can you know, tell him, uh, tell the woman you know, additional things. I don't think that's the case. I think he's claiming to be this Messiah. But he's actually claiming more than that here. Um, <clears throat> doesn't come across in the English translation, but the I am in this, uh, in, in Greek, is exactly how God's name I am is translated in the Septuagint. So just the way that he words the sentence is not just a claim to being the Messiah, it's a claim to being God himself. Okay, so with that, let's take a look at, at this woman worshiping uh, Christ once she sees him for who he is. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or who are you talking with? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town, and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already, <clears throat> already the one who weeps is, sorry, the one who reaps is receiving rages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reap, reaps. So um, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So the first thing to, to kind of pay attention uh, to is that the disciples are kind of surprised that he would be speaking to a woman. And you know, I, I don't think any of us could quite picture just how shocking this would be in, in that particular day and age. First of all, uh, speaking with a Samaritan on friendly terms would, would be quite shocking in itself. Speaking with a woman in public would be quite shocking. Both of those together would be uh, you know, way outside of uh, social norms at the time. Um, another thing that uh, kind of stands out is John mentions that the woman left her water jar and went away into the town uh, to tell people about Jesus. And I I really appreciate how John writes at multiple levels. At one level, you know, 
this, this detail kind of adds some urgency to her going to tell other people about Jesus. She's leaving something rather valuable behind. That it wouldn't be a good idea to leave unattended, but um, you know, she is so excited about the person that she's met that she leaves this behind in her, in her haste to, to tell other people about Jesus. But you know, I think if we kind of step back and look at this symbolism of living water, she's found living water. And symbolically, what need does she have of you know, this jar and the water from the well anymore when she's found living water and not kind of this uh, standard well water? <clears throat> and so I, th I think John very much means for both of those uh, meanings to be seen. Uh, another thing I, th I think that's, that's worth pointing out here is that you know, she had just had her sins laid bare. And what was her response? She immediately goes and tells everyone about Jesus. She's excited about Jesus. What might this tell us about you know, Jesus' style and demeanor in this conversation? And you know, how does that compare to how Christians are very frequently uh, seen today? Now, Jesus is never once you know, soft on sin. His consistent message to sinners is along the lines of, you know, go and sin no more. But he, he's also gentle and loving with sinners. And somehow, you know, even though he's never soft on sin, sinners are drawn to him. You know, uh, tax collectors and prostitutes are much more likely to be found kind of drawn to Jesus than you know, kind of the morally upright of that day. <clears throat> Too often, I think Christians can be seen as kind of a bunch of holier-than-thou people who kind of expect you to first clean up your act and start coming to church um, rather than people who realize that they're sinners, they're you know, every bunch as uh, in need of, we're everybody as much in need of the gospel as anyone else. We're no, no better than those that we're sharing the gospel with. And that doesn't come across. I think Jesus was able to get that across. And so I think there's something for us to, to see here. Um, yes. Yeah, I, I would imagine that you know, even if she were a respectable woman, going and talking to men in public wouldn't be an acceptable thing to do. And she's not a respectable woman. She would be very much discouraged from that doing that sort of thing. But what she had seen in Jesus was just so important to her that she didn't care. That's a very good observation. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, you're 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 certainly correct that you know that that, that shame that she'd feel to to you know, speak in public would be gone because she realized that her sins were forgiven. <clears throat> um, 
So what does uh, Jesus mean uh, by you know, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work? I think Jesus is teaching uh, that you more important even than being physically sustained by food, which is certainly necessary for life, our, our spiritual sustenance is obeying God's will. Uh, Jesus would rather let his stomach rumble and miss a meal if it meant the opportunity to, to glorify God. I th think that's what Jesus uh, means. So we're, we're going to see a lot about the harvest. And before we get into that, I just want to kind of step back and think about what a harvest would mean for an agrarian society. Now, if you kind of grew up and maybe got hired to go out and help somebody you know, during the harvest, that would be hard work. But for us, it would be rather different. Um, if you were a farmer and you kind of owned a, you know, enough land to produce enough food to kind of produce a sustainable income, you'd spend your entire year kind of tending to that farm. There would be things to kind of do all year. And you only produce anything useful when you harvest, just during that one week or two uh, of the actual harvest. So the harvest is everything. Um, all of the work that you've kind of put into that land for the past year is hopefully paying off and it's providing a year's worth of income to get you through to the next harvest. So a harvest is a big deal. And I think you can, you can see in these verses kind of excitement at the, uh, the harvest. It's where all of this non-productive work that you've been doing suddenly pays off with a year's worth of income. Um, So, oops. So uh, Jesus uh, kind of quotes an expression, um, and I don't think I have it up. I apologize for this. I'm going to need to uh, <clears throat> get just a little bit ahead in terms of verses. The, he, he's, um, he says, Do you not say uh, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? There's a couple possibilities there. It could be very literal, and that would basically mean it, you know, it's four months from that particular time until the harvest would come, and so they're four months away from the harvest. If you look at the likely chronology for John, it's actually very improbable that it would be that time of the year. Uh, that, that's uh, a problem. But I, I think that the meaning is a little bit more rich if we interpret it a different way. I, I think that um, this is an expression. So if you were out tilling ground, taking perfectly good, valuable seed and tossing it into dirt, what you would tell yourself to sustain yourself and to kind of keep yourself motivated is that four months later, I get to harvest this and I get, I get the money for that. So I think um, Jesus is probably quoting an expression that people would be familiar with that probably means something along those lines. So I, I don't think that they're literally four months away from the harvest. I think that... Um, the conventional wisdom is that you sow and four months later you come back for a harvest. <clears throat> and uh, I think Jesus expects us to have messianic passages in the Old Testament. I, I know I have gone to you know, th this passage at the end of Amos a few times. I'll probably go there a few more times because I, I think it's so useful in understanding what's going on. But let me read this. <clears throat> um, in that day, in the Messianic age, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its branches. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. 
The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make, uh, make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them in their land, and they shall never be uprooted again out of this land that I have given them, declares the Lord. Um, in the Messianic age, conventional wisdom is overturned. You don't sow, and four months later, you reap. Uh, the Messianic age is so bountiful that someone harvesting actually catches up and passes the person who's sowing grain. That's the image that Amos gives us, and I think that's what Jesus kind of expects us to understand about the Messianic age that we're, we're entering now. Um, what does Jesus mean by there being a harvest all around them? Um, does their location shed any light? So they're, they're outside of the city. This would undoubtedly be a, an area that's filled with fields, uh, and grain would probably be growing. It's probably not ripe yet if we're kind of right on the chronology of that. The grain would be kind of coming up. Um, <clears throat> so in, in one sense, th those fields literally are not yet ready for harvest. But spiritually, there's a village that need that, this living water. And about this time, the villagers have probably heard this woman, and they're coming towards the well. They're making their way to, to see this woman, or see this uh, person that this woman is so excited about. And I think that's the, the fields ready for harvest that Jesus wants his disciples to see. In verse 36, um, Jesus is kind of continuing those, those implica implications of an early harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Um, it's not hard to connect the sower and reaper to that uh, you know, prophecy of the messianic age that we just looked at. But I think Jesus is also teaching that you know, all roles in advancing God's kingdom are honorable, not those that just directly produce uh, profit, you know, reaping in, in this case, but you know, those that do other things for the gospel uh, have an honorable office as well. Oops. <clears throat> the next phrase is going to take a little bit of unpacking. For here, the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. Um, one of my favorite games to play if we have some people over is a game called Wise or Otherwise. I don't know how many of you have actually played this, but what that game has done is they've taken a number of kind of expressions, like a stitch in time saves nine or something like that from other languages. They've translated them into English, and they give you the first half, and you have to try to come up with a way of completing it, which is surprisingly hard to do. And you know, then you know, what everyone comes up with, as well as the, the true one or red, and it's you know, really, it makes it, makes it um, easy to picture, or it kind of helps you understand how hard it is to understand these expressions unless they're unpacked for you. And I, I think that Jesus is using an expression. This one I think we can kind of figure out. If you're in an agrarian society where sowing, it, it, it's an activity that actually costs you something. You have to spend grain to do it. You have less at the end of the process of sowing than you have before. Um, if somebody else were to come through and reap that, uh, you know, you've, you've put in investment and, you, and you've lost something. So this would be an expression that would sort of imply a really negative outcome. And you actually see things along this line in the Old Testament, you know, planting vineyards and someone else uh, harvesting the vineyards. Uh, that, that's kind of 
you know, an idea that's used throughout the Old Testament. In fact, the Amos passage, if you look at it closely, it kind of turns that on its head. Um, so I, I think that's what this expression is. It's a negative expression. You, you put work into something, someone else is going to benefit from it. And I think Jesus is taking that expression and he's turning it on its head. He's, he's saying that you know, this work has been done for you. Um, you know, all that's left is just to help people to come in uh, to the, the living water that he's providing. Um, it's not literal, it's spiritual. That means it's better. What Jesus is offering is not just a chance to show up and work uh, for a week at harvest time and, and gather a week's worth of wages, but we can participate in God spreading his kingdom and the wages that are received are eternal life um, and eternal rewards that far surpass anything of, of value in this world. There's a kind of an interesting irony between the actions of the disciples and the woman. The woman actually sees the fields that are ripe for harvest. She goes and she tells everyone about Jesus, and she reaps a great harvest. The disciples have been studying under Jesus for, for some time. They've seen him perform miracles, and they've heard his teaching, and they don't see what the Samaritan woman was able to see uh, in this. Um, the, the response of the Samaritans in comparison to the Jews at Jerusalem back in, in chapter 2 is also worth contrasting. So if we go back to John chapter 2, so Jesus has been in Jerusalem for a, a Passover feast, if I remember correctly. Um, he's cleansed the temple. There's indications that he's performed miracles and taught as well. We don't have a record of, of uh, specifics there. Um, you know, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself or did not believe in them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So they believed, but in a way that is excited about miracles, not in a way that really sees Jesus for who he is, um, not in an, in an adequate way. The Samaritans, on the other hand, see Jesus as the Messiah. Um, they don't see any miracles. There's no indication that any miracles were performed. And I think the text is actually kind of going out of its way um, to, to say that. You know, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. There's no indication that they've seen a miracle. That they've simply heard Jesus' message, uh, n nothing more. And uh, that's the basis for their belief. Whether Jesus did miracles or not, I don't know. But um, John seems to, to say that the miracles weren't necessary for the belief. It was the, the, uh, the message that Jesus preached during the two days that he, he spent there. So by the end of the section, we've seen many come to faith in Christ. What might this tell us about evangelism? Now, if you kind of listen to speakers and read up on evangelism, there's a number of strategies. Um, you win this dem demographic. They'll, they'll have some real influence, and they can really be in a good position to spread the gospel. If we can just convert a celebrity or an athlete or a famous atheist like C.S. Lewis, um, you know, any self-appointed expert on evangelism would have stopped Jesus cold here. You know, why waste your time on this woman? She's a nobody. No one will listen to her. Nobody respects her. And yet, Jesus used her to reach many in the city. This isn't to say that you know, more obvious evangelistic targets uh, might not, uh, not accomplish a great deal, and we could certainly look at the Apostle Paul that Tim's going to talk about in his sermon in, in a little bit, or we could look at C.S. Lewis that I, I quoted earlier that have done quite a bit for the kingdom, of course. But God can, in his wisdom and sovereignty, use anyone from the least to the greatest. And think about her theological knowledge, what little of it there probably was. Um, 
the conversation at the well probably was a little bit longer than what we have recorded, but still she would have known very little uh, going in, into that city. And yet she was still effective as a witness. Why? I think the, the text indicates why. She pointed people to Jesus. And we could look back at John chapter 1 when Jesus is calling the first disciples. Uh, Nathaniel goes and tells the others, you know, could this be the Messiah? And they say, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathaniel doesn't try to argue. He just says, come and see. And the woman says very much the same thing. Um, you Come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Um, <clears throat> uh, Ryle had just a really insightful uh, summary of uh, what I'm kind of trying to get across here. A bold invitation to come and make a trial of the gospel often produces more effect than the most elaborate arguments in support of its doctrines. This really levels the playing field in terms of evangelism. Um, <clears throat> you, one doesn't need significant theological knowledge or training. One simply needs to invite others to come and see. Um, the, the last thing that I, I want to point out here is the, the significance of the title that the Samaritans give to Jesus. They say that he's the savior of the world. They could have said that he's the Messiah. The Samaritans have a different title for the Messiah. They call him the Tahib, and so they might have referred to him as the Tahib. Um, they don't use either of those. Um, he's not the Jewish Messiah. He's not the Samaritan Messiah. They're now recognizing what we saw back in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, and uh, Jesus is the savior of the world, not just the savior of any particular people. Okay. So with that, I think we're, we're finished with this section. I've got time for a question or two. That, that's very likely. You know, it, it, Jesus could kind of be saying that you know, the Old Testament prophets have labored and the Messianic age is, is here now. I'm not sure that that's there. Some of the commentaries certainly pointed to that. You know, it could be that God has uh, you know, provided a means of salvation. God has done kind of all the heavy lifting to be able to bring people to himself. All that's left is just to tell people about it. Um, I would probably lean towards the second, but I think both of them are, are reasonable ways of looking at it. Tim.
Not at all. <laughs> you know, Certainly given. Thank you. And I, I, I really do appreciate questions and being challenged, so I, I'm not upset at all. <laughs> but thank, thank you very much. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> okay. Um, looks like I'm out of time, so we'll go ahead and uh, close with a very quick prayer. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for what we have seen of, of living water in this passage. Thank you for you know, giving us fields that are ripe for harvest, where we simply have to kind of show up and harvest and um, you can reap the benefit that uh, others and, and yourself have uh, put before us so bountifully. In Jesus' name, amen.